Good afternoon, ladies. Um, I know many of you, but I don't, don't know all of you. So my name is Rabbi Menachem Levine. I'm the rabbi in San Jose and Amachad. Um, and today I'm going to give a lecture on Dana Gracia Mendes Nasi. Um, I, there, I think the last five minutes I was asked uh, there's some kind of Ladino song about Dana Gracia Mendes Nasi, which means somebody here knows about her today besides myself. So I'll step out when that happens. But if anyone has any questions, uh, I'm going to leave my wife here, who's, you know, it's always a good sign when your wife comes to actually hear you. <laughs> and I also know that I'll get real constructive criticism and feedback that way. Uh, well, I, that's exactly my point. So if you have any questions, any follow-up, please feel free to contact me. Maybe I'll hang on the halls. Um, really, you know, I, I, I typically don't love these type of lectures because you walk in somewhere and you leave and you don't get follow-up. And really, all Torah really needs a relationship. Um, but this is a history class, and it's an important class, so we'll see what we can do in that in this 55 minutes. So very briefly, um, for those who are interested, I actually have a Jewish history series, which is online about 40 hours. It's been about over 5,000 times uh, online, and I know it's even on other sites as well. So that has about 40 hours of Jewish history, the past 2,000 years. Um, but I wanted to just briefly start with why to learn Jewish history. Um, Five basic reasons, and again, I'm gonna, I'm, this is the last time I'm going to do this, I'm going to plug that Jewish history series. There I discuss why history is important, and why in particular, for all of us, Jewish history is important. So number one, why is it important to learn Jewish history? Is to know who we are. Imagine the following thing. Imagine tomorrow morning, you would wake up, and you wouldn't know who your grandparents, your parents were, your great-grandparents were. You wouldn't know what foods you liked. What would your identity be? It means if, if you would wake up tomorrow and you had no idea where you came from, no idea your origins, and you just live your life, it would be very hard to figure out who you are. If you don't know where you come from, if you don't understand your background, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're a Jew and you never heard of the Holocaust or the, the, the family of the state of Israel or the Chalmanitsky pogroms, if you don't know what the Tachvatat Programs were, well, you don't understand Polish Jewry. You can't understand Ukrainian Jewry. If you don't know what the Spanish Inquisition was, then you can't understand a lot of Spanish Jewry. So knowing Jewish history allows us to understand who we are. If we don't know our past, then we don't know who we are in the present to it. Except we, we may have certain mannerisms, certain cultural things, but we'll really be missing out a lot about ourselves if we don't know who we are in, in the past. Uh, number two is to understand world history because Jewish history is intertwined with world history. Um, you know, a, a Jewish perspective that a lot of world history happens because of, of the Jews itself. Number three, and again, this is beyond the topic today, is there a purpose of life? So much of Jewish history uh, interacts with this idea, is there a purpose to life? Number four is, and this will really be uh, elaborated on today, the wonder of Jewish survival, which should strengthen our faith. If we could appreciate that not only have we survived in history, but we have thrived in history, our emunah, our faith, could and should be strengthened. Here's a quick quote from one of the great Talmudists, the Maritz Chies, Chies of Brody, Poland, who says as follows, No sensible person would deny that the knowledge of history of our nation, in general and in detail, 
for every intelligent person whose portion is God's Torah, so they may know what God did with his nation, how the people of our nation always rise and fall and are led by God's particular providence, and that every generation there are those who rise to annihilate us, and at all time God appoints faithful saviors, servants, who endanger their lives to save this great multitude. Jewish people, whether it's spiritually, whether it's materially, physically, we have survived the test of time. In fact, we thrive. In fact, you ladies are here. You ladies are here on a Sunday morning, coming from various Jewish backgrounds, here to, to learn God's eternal Torah is an unbelievable thing. It's a remarkable thing. When you think about, we're here studying God's Torah, which was given 3,700 years ago, Right? It's an, it should strengthen our faith. In fact, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, the great Jewish sage from, from Amsterdam, said 300 years ago that he, personally, his faith was strengthened more by studying how the Jewish people went through history, impacted the entire world, not only survived, but thrived even more than the giving of the Torah at Sinai. That's what Rabbi Yaakov Emden writes to the sitter. And number five uh, is to deal with the challenges of today. If you, could, if you can learn from history... If you could see how people survived, thrived, dealt with challenging situations, we could incorporate, we could inculcate that into our personal lives. Again, it's just a very brief uh, summary of, of some reasons to learn Jewish history. There's also a value in, in to learning biographies. Number one, the Ramchal, in his Path of the Just, points out that when we learn about great people, it can inspire us to be great. It inspires us to become great in our, in our lives. Uh, he, he recommends to study the, the, the lives of great Jews so that we can look in our own lives and say, how could we apply this to our own life? Number two is to learn, uh, we have great leaders. Uh, uh, we, the Jewish people, over time, have had the most unbelievable leaders. And if you want to be part of the Jewish nation, if you want to be inspired by the Torah, you need to know what the Chavetz Chaim was. You need to know the Vilna Gaon and the Baal Shem Tov was. You have to realize that these people were not just brilliant people. They were outstanding individuals. They, they were holy individuals. They were caring individuals. And the, when, you when you, we study these, the biographies of these great individuals, so we come to, uh, to appreciate who we are. And number three, when you study a biography, you realize how people, individuals, impact not only their own generation, but generations to come. Generations to come. You know, we say that Yom Hadin, the final day of judgment, has to be at the end of time. You know why? Because if you help a person, you turn somebody on to Judaism, you don't just affect them. You affect their children and their grandchildren until the end of time. It will, it will go on and on. And if you hurt somebody, you know, Dr. Fox, I know her and her husband pretty well. I mean, they deal with abuse cases. You abuse a kid, that just says, you didn't just abuse this kid, you, you abuse their, all their future generations. It's very, very hard to get out of that. You, 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 you hurt somebody, you just hurt them. You hurt generations to come. In fact, what do we call the Day of Atonement? What's the Day of Atonement called? Yom Kippur, but what's the actual Yom Kippurim? Plural. You know why it's called plural? The, the Svarim bring down, because when we atone on Yom Kippur, we don't just atone for ourselves, we atone for our great-great-great-great-grandparents. Right? If we're lacking in something, it started somewhere else, right? You're, the parent screams to the kid, you're an idiot! Well, the parent learned that from their parents. So we say, I'm not going to do that anymore? 
we're not going to call our kids idiots. We're fixing, now we are for our children, we're helping out our great-grandparents who were the first people to do that. Right? Because what we do affects not just us, it affects many future generations. You know, most biographies, are, it's, it's unfortunate you learn about, you know, the great figures, the big rabbis, the big presidents, the big rabbis. And what happens with biographies, is, especially in the Jewish world, is we tend to focus on these fantastic, bombastic, famous individuals, and we lose focus that really Judaism, not just this famous rabbi or rabbitson, but very often it's the individual people who built the Jewish people. And if we don't realize that, we take ourselves out of the picture. Right? It's ultimately, we're in this room. We all are in this room because of people who came before us, not only the great sages, but the individual people who impacted generations to come. One person, can I ask a question? Who heard of Donna Grassi and Mendes Nasi before this class was advertised? You're not bad. Most people never heard of her. And today we're going to learn about an unbelievable lady who really had everything going against her that we should have heard today. We should, if you heard Donna Grassi Mendes Nasi, you should have heard of a person who was a Catholic, who was not Jewish, who was a very famous, who could have lived an easy life as a Catholic, ultra-rich lady, and it had no impact on the Jewish nation. That's what could have probably should have happened. That's not what happened. And so today, briefly, we'll talk about a lady who impacts all of us. Donna Gracia Mendes Nasi lived from 1510 to 1569. Few other figures in Jewish history, particularly in the Middle Ages, played such an inspiring and beneficial part for their fellow Jews as did this lady, Dana Gracia. Gracia Mendes Nasi. Gracia is Portuguese or Spanish for Chana or Chain, Grace. Chana, uh, which, is, which is Grace. She's also, can somebody please open the door? I think she want to come in. No? I think she wants to. Okay, it's fine. Uh, also, also known, she's also known by her Christianized name, Beatrice de Luna. She was one of the richest women, let alone Jewish women, in Renaissance Europe. She ma- married Francisco Mendes Benvenisti. Benvenisti is a very uh, famous family. It's from the Chaltiel family. My wife, who, who, she actually on her, oh, she's a, for the Chabad folks, she is not only a Schneerson, for, at the end of the first three of the Babach Rebbe's, but she's also uh, a Chain, which is Chain, Chain is the, one of the original Chabad families. And Chain comes from the Shaltiel family, which is the Benveniste family. It goes all the way back to King David. So she's actually a descendant of King David on both sides of her grandparents. Um, but the, the Benveniste, Shaltiel, Chain family, um, that, that, uh, that, 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 that family was a very wealthy Spanish Jewish family. And she was uh, from, from married into, the, into that family. She was the, and the aunt of the business partner of Joseph Nassi. We'll see shortly how that will all play out. The legends, historical legends, which did not until recently pass down time, but in her own day about her, was, were amazing. If you read the, the history books from those days, they were amazing how, about her outstanding personality, how she saved hundreds of conversos, of, of forcibly converted Jews. She was called our angel, or to most Sephardic Jews of the time, simply La Senora, Right? The misses. She was the misses of the gen- uh, of the generation. 
just very, very basic context. It's, you know, when we talk about historical figures, you need to understand the historical time. She, in, in the 16th century, the Jews of Europe really had very few places to go. They were kicked out already of England. They were kicked out already of France. Germany was f- drenched with Jewish blood. In fact, that's why most Jews were, by that time were heading over to Eastern Europe, to Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, because Germany was, 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 was terrible. Um, and at that point, in the late 15th century, uh, going to the 16th century, the Iberian Peninsula, both Spain and Portugal, cracked down the Jews. Well, as well known, uh, in 1492, was a Lombard decree, which was a Spanish expulsion. The, uh, the, the, somewhere between 200 to 400,000 Jews were forcibly expelled. The, the Arbarbanel says it was 300,000 forcibly expelled from Spain. And approximately 150,000 Jews stayed in Spain, stayed in Spain, and took on uh, ex- outwardly Catholic practices. They became Moranos, conversos. Many of those who fleed Spain actually went to Portugal. But in 1497, Portugal also had a forced conversion. And tens of thousands of Jews uh, converted to um, Catholicism in Portugal as well. Those Jews, you would think, perhaps, once they, once they uh, outwardly converted, life would be easy. On the contrary, once they converted, that's when the Inquisition came after them. Which means if you were a, a, a converso, or what they called a Murano, a Murano was a, uh, what they called Jewish swine, which means even when you were a Catholic, you were not accepted fully as one of the crowd. They would look for you. They would hunt for you. They would search for you. Do, are you really Judaizing? And, you know, sometimes it was scapegoating if they didn't like you. But very often, anything you would have done could have come under consideration as being this, this, this Murano, this fake Jew. In fact, told today, this has tremendous ramifications for certain communities. She, Beatrice de Luna, Donna Gracia Mendes, was born to such a family. Her dramatic, I guess I would call it even melodramatic life, she was born Beatrice de Luna in Portugal in 1510. So in Portugal, her family went in 1492 as Jews to Portugal. They were forcibly converted in 1497. That's what most feel. In 1497. So when she's born in 1510, her family has been living several years as Moranos, as, conver- uh, as, as secret Jews. Uh, uh, crypto Jews is the last thing they call it. They would still practice Judaism in, pri- in, pri- uh, in private. Um, and uh, uh, her father was... Uh, her, her father... What, her father's last name was Deluna, and her mother was actually from the, actually, the same family. She married her uncle, uncle was the Benvenisti family. So in 1528, Donna Gracia marries her uncle. Her uncle was an individual named Francisco Mendez. Francisco Mendez was a very wealthy uh, spice trader. When, what, 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 what year did uh, the New World was it, the, the New World found? 1492. Same day, right? As the Jews are the same week as the expulsion was to take place. What day was that? The final day of the expulsion, the Spanish Inquisition? Of the Spanish expulsion? Anyone know? What day was the expulsion? Huh? Tishabov. The last day of the expulsion, the last day, 
Jews had to get out of Spain was Tishabov. And do you know who was at the port that day of Tishabov in 1492? Christopher Columbus. In fact, this is a fact. He writes in his diary that his journey had to get delayed, had to get delayed because there are so many boats of these Spanish Jews leaving. As Spanish Jewry comes to a roaring end, Spanish Jewry was the largest Jewish community in the world. In fact, in 1100 of the Common Error, 97%, 97% of world Jewry were Sephardic. By the year 1900, only 10% of world Jewry was Sephardic. Reason being is because, number one reason was because what happened to Spanish Jewry. Okay, so they went from 3% to, to 10 per, from 97% to 10% because one of the, probably not one, the greatest reason for that is what happened to Spanish Jewry. But as the end of Spanish Jewry was coming, the new world, America, was about to be explored. And one of the families that really took advantage of that was the Mendes family. They were international traders. They were, had been trading in Asia and they now became big traders to the new world uh, as well. So by 1528, when she got married to her uncle, Francisco Mendes, he was already an extraordinarily uh, wealthy man. They had a public Catholic wedding in Lisbon. And in private, they had a Jewish wedding with a ksubo. But that was the life she lived. right? She had a public wedding in a Catholic church in Lisbon and a private Jewish ceremony with the Ksuba to marry her uncle. By the way, many of the Moranos, many of the Conversos, married into family. Why? So that, you know, they technically had to marry Catholics. Well, if they married their family, they wouldn't marry their family. It was an excuse why they weren't marrying the Hernandez or Rodriguez down the block, who were also nice Catholic men. They married the family. No, we like to marry our family. So if you look, many of these families, they married, they married into themselves. Okay. Um, that the, the, uh, again, following the age of discovery, the family is very wealthy. But in 1538, January 1538, which she was not even 28 years old, her husband, who was her uncle, so he's considerably older, Francisco Mendes died. And he did, she had, she had a young daughter named Anna, who was, who was only four years old, but he did something very interesting. You know, context, ladies. In the 16th century, in, uh, in, certainly in the 17th century, 16th century, women were not empowered. Right? They were not, you know, they, they, they were not the business people. They were not the, the leaders very often. They didn't have that as many uh, legal rights even, right? Whether it was only land, there's no, there no voting in those days. So he, what he did was amazing. He gave half his estate to his wife, which was unheard of in those days, to this mega company. And the other half to his brother, who was his partner, uh, his brother's name was Diego. Her, his brother had moved to Antwerp in, 15, in 1538. Um, and he moved to Antwerp uh, partially because Antwerp was the port city of, one of the great port cities of Europe, but also partially because the Inquisition, which had not been in Portugal, they were forcibly converted. But Portugal, for years afterwards, did not impose the Inquisition. But the Inquisition was coming to Portugal at that time. Which means in 1497, they had a conversion. Forcibly, they had no choice. They had no options. 
either there was death or conversion. I mean, you have to imagine what this is like. Right? You have to, Spain and Portugal, until that point, was the America of Europe. It was the, was the most free, the most prosperous Jewish community in, in probably a thousand years in the Christian world. It, it didn't exist. So, and Portugal had this, but they didn't want to force it, like Spain did. But now they were coming. Because um, in May 23rd, 1536, the Pope himself ordered the establishment of the Portuguese uh, Inquisition, which put this family in danger, because if the Inquisition got your property, um, they would, they, they would, it would be, they had an interest to do it, because the church would get one of the wealthiest families one of the wealthiest families in Europe. They would get all their property. All they had to do is prove that really they're Judaizing. And they were. The, Men- the Mendes family were Judaizing. They- the kings very often closed their eyes to it because they were powerful people. But they were keeping lives as secret, as secret Jews. Um, so she moved to Antwerp with, with, her, with her brother-in-law, uh, who was also her uncle, took her, took her daughter and her sister, Brianda. Um, she went through... Uh, London, and just to show you how bad it is and how their connections were, her brother-in-law Diego, at one point, was arrested by Charles V. Remember heard of Charles V? Charles V, at the time, was the head of the Holy Roman Emperor Empire, and he was the head of Spanish. He was the most powerful person in the world. Charles V had personally had the Inquisition in 1532 come after Diego Mendes. And do you know who got him freed? The King of Portugal and King Henry VIII. Okay? <laughs> King Henry VIII. You know, everyone heard King, King Henry VIII. Everyone heard, right? It was King Henry VIII because he had been with King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII and the King of Portugal, they were the ones who had Diego Mendes, Dona Gracia Mendes' uh, uncle and brother-in-law uh, freed. So it's under these circumstances that she went to Antwerp. Um, the business continued to expand. Uh, and the family's actually closer because her younger sister, Bayanda, also married her uncle and married this Diego Mendes. Five years later, though, he also passed away. So in 1542, he gave his complete estate, not to his wife, but to his sister-in-law, Dona Gracia Mendes. So this lady all of a sudden became one of the wealthiest people in all of Europe. She is, now think about this at the time. You know, you, you know you, the problem with history is like you have to imagine yourself in this. In in imagine yourself in this situation. You are in the wealthiest people. You could live an easy life. All you had to do is pretend you are live like the Catholic. So all you had to do, you could have lived the life of luxury. Life would be simple. She, 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 they, she, they control this humongous trade organization. They're super wealthy, but she doesn't choose that life. Rather, with all of her wealth, her first priority becomes to save and to get out the conversos from Portugal. So she starts, with her wealth, to finance people coming through uh, Spain and Portugal. They came in with her boats into Antwerp. From Antwerp, they crossed over the Alps into Italy. They went through in Italy, then took boats into to Turkey. This didn't happen with dozens. Hundreds of families took this route while she was in Antwerp, which she personally sponsored. Right? And it wasn't you know, just to own the boats. You know how these things happen? Robbery. 
Right? They had to bribe people. It, it, it included tremendous risk for herself. Right? She put her, herself, her life, her daughter's life, her family fortune on the line to save hundreds of families um, from, from Portugal. Um, um, at the time, by the way, the Ottoman, uh, was the, 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 the Turks, which was the, the beginning of the Ottoman Empire, was super friendly to Jews. It's known that Bejid, who was the, uh, his father Mehmet, was the one who conquered, just talking about divine providence. Mehmet, in 1453, did the, the amazing. He conquered Constantinople from uh, the, the, the Christians, renamed it Istanbul, okay, Till today, Istanbul is one of the largest cities in the world. At the time, Constantinople was probably one of the top two or three greatest cities in Europe. And for hundreds of years, the Turks had tried to conquer this unsuccessfully. Mehmet conquered it. His son, Bejid, conquered the Holy Land. So this is all working together at the same time. And Bejid, when the, when the, when the Spaniards did not kick out the Jews, he took them in. And his court is saying, his Ferdinand, they say, is smart, he's an idiot. He's giving all of his wealth to me. He's giving me all the Jews. Right? So the, the place where Jews were trying to go was Turkey. And by the way, the number one community in Turkey would be Salonika. Thessalonica is actually what today is Greece. It's the second largest city in Greece. They were, Salonika became so Jewish that it, it was one of the greatest ports in Europe. It was closed on Shabbos. They knew, they knew that they, the, the, the boats knew that they could not go there on Saturday because they couldn't dock. That's how Jewish Thessalonica, Salonica became. Um, so she was trying to get all of these Jews out of Portugal and into uh, Th- uh, Thessalonica. She dealt with, amongst the people she dealt with intimately in business, was King Henry II of France, Charles V, who was the Roman, Ro- Roman Emperor, the popes, the popes, Paul the Third and Paul IV, who she bribed and she made deals with. In fact, she personally... She personally delayed the Inquisition from coming to Portugal, which gave many thousands of families an opportunity to get out. Imagine, we don't even realize the impact, how many thousands of families were saved because of her delaying the Inquisition from coming there. She navigated all kinds of political waters with it. Um, However, things got a little bit messy because in, in, in 1548... Charles V's sister, again, Charles V is the most powerful emperor of the time. He's the head of the Holy Roman Empire, which is today. It was Germany, Austria, parts of Hungary, Spain, uh, the, almost all of the New World at the time, because Spain, Spain had all of South and Central America uh, and the Mediterranean. Uh, Charles V's sister decided that she was going to be the Shadchan for Donna Grassi Mendes' daughter, only child, Anna. And she said, I, she came to Donna Gracia. I said, I have made a deal to marry off your daughter to one of the most powerful noblemen in Spain. And she, she's going to get a cut of the Shadchanas, and the Shadchanas was not $1,800, right? It was an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, and at that point, what's she going to say? Right? Your nobility, your royalty, the, most, the sister of the most powerful person in the world just told you she has a She's marrying off your daughter. She has somebody for her. She tried any way to get out of this. Ultimately, she escaped to Italy. Right? And she gets to, to, to Italy with her, with, with her daughter, her sister, uh, her nephew, 
who was Joa Mikas, which was later known when he became a full-fledged Jew as uh, Don Yosef Nasi. And they get they go to Italy. Okay, they go to, to Venice. Um, they end up in Venice. Uh, Venice is famous, which Shakespeare's famous play. Merchant of Venice, right? Venice was a, 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 a Jewish city. In fact, one of the first ghettos is in Venice. <laughs> we call it ghetto was 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 in Venice. Um, and while there, she finally, for the first time of her life, threw off her charade. She changed her name from Beatrice de Luna to Gracia Mendes Nasi. She openly began to practice her Judaism. One thing, however, that became um, uh, very troublesome for her is that her sister, who, who, who started to prosecute her, her sister prosecuted her because she felt she deserved some of inheritance of her late husband. And, by the way, I, I gave a lecture about four weeks ago, it's been, it's been I think, lecture, hundreds of times, called, uh, it's on preparing for the end of life, it's about trusts, estates, burial arrangements, it's online. Uh, it happens to be, like these type of topics I discuss, uh, you know, the wisdom of the brother not to give the sister anything, and when you think about it, I don't know how smart it was, because her sister became her enemy. <laughs> her sister felt that she was gypped out of the inheritance, and they would be fighting for this for, for, for years to come. Um, Donna Grassa, her sister was not her. She was more, more into materialism, was not as into her Judaism. And she, she personally felt uh, that it would be a danger for her sister to have the money and the power. She tried to block her sister from it. So they ended up multiple times in front of Italian authorities uh, dealing with this. And afterwards, she moved to Ferrara. Ferrara is a city in northern Italy where the Duke welcome the Jews. Now, if you look at the Middle Ages and going into the Renaissance, we were the wandering Jews. And what, often where we ended up was where we were allowed to be. Uh, where we had some modicum of rights, some amount of ability to live free lives. Uh, we can't imagine the world we live in today. And if you were a Jew a few hundred years ago, uh, we had so many discriminatory liberals, let alone persecution uh, and, and pogroms or, or murders. She come, the Duke of Este was super welcoming to them. She moves to Ferrara. There she even more embraced her, her Judaism. Uh, her daughter Bri- uh, took the name Raina. Raina, anyone know what Raina means? Raina. Huh? Raina. Okay. I say like Yiddish, Raina. Raina, right? Uh, Raina, which means, which, means, which means queen. Um... And they embraced Jewish, Jewish identity. She did a remarkable thing at times. She sponsored the first Bible, it's called the Ferreira Bible, in Ladino. Ladino. Okay? Ladino was, like there's Yiddish, Ashkenazi Jews have Yiddish. I see there's a Ladino uh, song here, right? Uh, Ladino was a, 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 a slang which the Marano, which the conversal Jews spoke based off Spanish, Portuguese, like Yiddish is a slang of Old German. Right? It became the Jewish language, uh, which the Jews spoke amongst themselves. It was super popular until maybe a hundred years ago. Today, very, if it's, you know, the Yiddish is kept alive by the Hasidim. There are very few people who speak Latino today. Uh, the book Ma'am Loez. Anyone heard of the book Ma'am Loez? Ma'am Loez? Yeah. Ma'am Loez was written in, it was, it was probably the most popular a book in the Mediterranean for many years. Mamlois was written in Ladino. It was translated by Arya Kaplan. Arya Kaplan, who was brilliant beyond belief, one of the things he did was learn Ladino, 
just to translate, just to translate Ma'am Lohez. And he did translate it. Now it's in multiple uh, languages. Um, just very briefly, uh, the, his, her sister uh, did not want to to leave, and she had a daughter. At one point, uh, the not, the nephew Joah, who became uh, jo- Joseph Nasi, married his his niece, his cousin uh, to get her out of Italy and away from her mother. It didn't go. It, it was it tried a few times. Ultimately, J- Joseph Nasi marries. Uh, he ultimately marries. Uh, the daughter of Donna Gracia Mendez, who, uh, Reina, uh, who, is, who is Anna. And they decide that Italy itself was too unstable. Italy, Italy had, was, had, was a, um, had both worlds going on at once. It had the Roman papal states. It also was the home of the Renaissance. Um, again, actually, I, I have a, a, a class called Renaissance and Reformation online, if anyone wants to hear how that played out for Italian Jews, but they felt Italy was too dangerous and they moved to Constantinople. And there, in Constantinople, now Istanbul, Gracia Mendes fully was able to impact the Jewish people because what she did when she was in Portugal or Antwerp or Italy, she was always some level held back by either living outwardly as a Catholic or the danger of being close to the, to the clause of the Inquisition, or of, or of leaders who wanted her money and wanted her estate. In Constantinople, that was not the case uh, at, at all. Uh, her, her son-in-law, formerly her, and her nephew, Don Yosef Nasi, became super powerful as well. He became the Duke of Nexos, um, which is a, an island in the Mediterranean. He became one of the most trusted advisors to Suleiman the Magnificent. Anyone know what Suleiman the Magnificent did of interest? Suleiman the Magnificent was the son of, of Sam. He built the old city, the walls of the old city. The walls, anyone who goes to the old city of today, that wall in the old city was built by Suleiman the Magnificent. In fact, you can read it, the inscriptions on the wall. This was built by Suleiman the Magnificent. He actually killed people. This actually has ramifications right till, till today. He killed the, some of the people who built it because he, what he said was he wanted the wall of the ancient city. And they messed up. And they built the, ro- the wall out. How do we know this? Because the city of David, Ir David, right, where, where, right near Harzasim, or the, you know, where, the, where all this is, that was the old Jerusalem. That's actually where many of the things happened. And that, the wall was not built around there. So when you go down, when you go out to the Arab East Quarter, and you go out to where Harzasim is, that, that area, or Silouan, anyone ever been to Silouan? Right? That area was ancient Jerusalem. But when they messed up on the wall, I actually had them killed. So Suleiman the Magnificent was very Philo-friendly, Philo-Jewish, Philo-Semitic. It's hard to call a Muslim Philo-Semitic, but Philo, you know, that's how we talk about it today. He, Philo, he, was Philo, he, was, he loved the Jews. He, very close to this Don Yosef Nasi. He appointed the Duke of Nexus. And the, between Dana Gracia Mendes and her, and her son-in-law, they became the layheads of the entire Jewish population in the Mediterranean. They were the Sephardic heroes they were the people who, who, who protected, who built, who watched out for, not only Sephardic Jew, but world Jew, but in particular for the Sephardic world. When she, when she lived in Istanbul, um, she lived in, 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 in a fancy place called Galata, but her, her charity and her deeds went out throughout. In Istanbul, Constantinople, she built synagogues and yeshivas. In Istanbul, in Greece, in Salonika in particular, um, she, she was, her, her baby was Salonika. 
she personally put Salonika on, 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 on the, map, the map. There's a synagogue, I think till this day, it's called the Sonora, which was named for Dona Gracia Mendes. Uh, she continued to settle hundreds of conversos in, in her faith. Uh, Cecil Roth, anyone ever Cecil, Cecil Roth? Cecil Cecil, I have American English or, or British. So Cecil Roth, who was an Oxford, uh, who was an Oxford uh, professor, a Jewish historian, he writes in his. He has one of the two or three famous books in Dona Gracia Mendes. And she said every day at her table, she had eighty paupers, which she fed on her table every every every, every day, and she personally watched out for ten thousand Muranos in Salonica. With her own wealth, she watched out for 10,000. She, as mentioned, she sponsored the Pharaoh Tanakh. She had tr- beautiful relationships and important relationships with the, the Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, with the Marashtam, who was a chief rabbi, of uh, Shmuel de Medina, who was a chief rabbi of, uh, of Salonika, the Abbasin, who lived from 1506 to 1509, and with the Mabit of Yosef who was also had a jury, who lived from 1500 to 1580. Um, she built a publishing house. Her daughter Raina, Raina, excuse me, Raina uh, was heir to her mother's ideals. Raina actually pu- built a, a, a publishing house. We have some of the books. In fact, five of these very rare books are in the Library of Congress today in Washington from her. One of the amazing things which Donna Grassi Mendes did, you, again, you can't imagine the world that they lived in. You know, essentially, Europe was, I would say, I, I wouldn't, you know, I know we have. Ruben here, the Holocaust uh, thing, you know, it's essentially Nazi Germany, 1936. It wasn't the, it wasn't the Holocaust. It was living under the Nazis. That's what most of Europe was like. If you know when Hitler was in power, and at any moment he could do a Kristallnacht, at any moment anything can happen, and the Jews were powerless, that was what most of Europe was in, 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 in the Middle Ages. And what she do, does in the, in the church, it was terrible times. I mean, really... The, the Counter-Reformation was on. The church was trying to destroy all heretics. They went after Jews and everything. And, and everything. Oh, so, uh, everything else. So she, in, in 1556, the Counter-Reformation comes to Italy. And they start coming after the Jews in Ancona, Italy. They, they arrested uh, over 100 Muranos who had been there. The Sultan, Suleiman, said to not touch them. And the Pope didn't care. He burnt alive, burnt alive 28 Muranos, uh, uh, 28 Muranos, uh, in, including uh, uh, Donna Grassi Mendes' agent in Ancona, an elderly woman, little boy. Um, and to protest this, she said th- that, that we're going to boycott Ancona. Ancona was one of the great ports of Europe. She said, we're going to organize a boycott of Ancona. Right? We're going to boycott them. This was unheard of. Right? Jews didn't fight back like that. Right? You, don't, you don't do that to the, to the Pope. You, and she, she, since there's so many Jews in that area that are involved in mercantile shipping, she, uh, she decided that she, she would boycott. She actually had many of the rabbis, including Rabbi Yosef Cairo, sign on to this boycott. Uh, and, and, and Riosi even lived, that they were going to boycott and they're going to move all of their, their, their goods to a nearby city in Italy called Pissarro. And the Duke of Pissarro had taken this on. However, 
And she, she organizes. I mean, this was an amazing thing. Not only was it amazing, you don't... Can you imagine, like, today, people are scared of Putin. Like, you know, you don't start off in the Middle East. Like, this is nothing. Imagine, you know, taking on Putin. Like, with they have KGB agents and all... They can hack into your stuff. People are worried about uh, whether... How much of it's real or fake. I'm not going to comment on it over here. Uh, but but there's, there's no question... There's a, She's taking on people who could send people to kill her. I mean, there's a million things. She, she single-handedly organizes this program. She gets all these rabbis to sign, but one of the great rabbis doesn't sign it. And that is Rabbi Sancino of Slonico, because he had a rationale. He said it's utter to boycott. And the reason is, is because the Pope came after the, the new Christians, the conversos in Ancona. And he felt that if you boycott Ancona, they'll come after the, the Jews that were living there, because who did the Inquisition come after? Those who converted. Because if you converted and you were Judaizing, you were keeping your Judaism, you were a heretic. If you never converted, you're just an idiot in their minds. You're, you're a lowly Jew. But the new Christians, right, if you converted to Catholicism and you were keeping Jewish faith, that's who they went after. And this Rabbi, Rabbi Sancino uh, felt that you were going to endanger the practicing Jews of Ancona, and he was against it. He actually poskened. You couldn't, he started to convince people it, it was uh, not, a, not, a, not a good idea. And he won uh, the support of a lot of the merchants, and the boycott actually failed. At the end of the day, uh, the, boycott, uh, the boycott failed. But just to quote uh, Cecil Roth in his, in his book, it was amazing that it was a woman, and again, a woman in the 16th century, it was the first time the Jews fought back against the church. We viewed ourselves as powerless. It was, and you have to imagine, in that time, again, a woman who is not even there, she's living in the Ottoman Empire, would be the one to organize the opposition uh, to it. She did another amazing thing, which is really not that well known, until very recently. In 1558, Donna Gracia Mendes was granted a long-term lease of Tiberius. She actually, from Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, convinced him to give her a long-term lease that means she would control Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was very significant. Tiberius was the last meeting place of the Sanhedrin. It's where the Jerusalem Talmud was written. The last great settlement before the Romans essentially, uh, and the Byzantines essentially, knocked out the Jews from ancient Israel was Tiberius. Anyone heard Rabbi Yochanan, the sage of the Talmud? He lived in Tiberias. Tiberias, Tiberia, was this ancient city. And in fact, there was a tradition among some that when the Sanhedrin would be come back before going to Jerusalem, it would come to Tiberias. Actually, when this happens, it, uh, she was supporting the Jews of Sfat, as was her, her, her son-in-law. It, it was electric. And he gave her the rights uh, to ti- Tiberias. She had to pay like a thousand gold ducats a year, which was to increase uh, tenfold. She built a yeshiva there. That yeshiva actually got people from around the, the Middle East, as far as Yemen, to come to that yeshiva. Um, uh, and unfortunately, though, she passed away very shortly after. And it, it didn't continue, because they didn't have the money to continue it. But it was actually the first, first time in a thousand plus years that Jews had any autonomy in any area in Israel. I mean, she had complete rights to Tiberia. Right? Some claim, that um, this actually gave the early Zionists this idea as well, because under the Turks, one of the things they did, they started buying areas where they can have complete autonomy. Because remember, when the, when, when the early settlers, even before Herzl, Bilu movement would come in, they would start buying land from the Turks. The Turks were in charge of Israel until when? 
1917, right, when the, when the British would conquer in World War I. So uh, this was the first time that happened, and that's what Donna Grassi says. She did something else which was mind-boggling, like amazingly mind-boggling. In 1554, she had her long-deceased husband exhumed from Portugal. She, they, no one knows how this happened, exhumed, and she buried him near Harzasim in the valley of Yoshafet, where she actually, she's buried next to her husband. She paid off people. They don't have to realize how, how did they get to the grave or how did they get, get to get the body and to bury her husband, Francisco Mendez, in the valley of Yoshafet, which is really, which is right next to Harzasim, where she was buried uh, as well. She will die in 1569. Uh, when she dies, for many years, very few people heard of her. Recently, in the secular world, um, her name has become popular. And actually, if you go to Tiberius today, there's a Donna Grazia Mendez house that's in, into, it's there. Uh, in New York City in 2010, uh, uh, had a Donna Grazia Mendez Day. Uh, Philadelphia had one the following year. The Turkish government, as of late, has been sponsoring things about her. Uh, an Italian white wine. She made a white wine, right? If Rashi can make it, so you have to have a Donna Grazia Mendez as well. Um, the Israeli Mint produced a commemorative medal f- for her. Um, and there's been television shows, there's been a stamp in her uh, as well. But what's amazing, and when you think of our own lives uh, as well, this lady, Donna Gracia Mendes, who passed away and for years was not heard of, like really, uh, if you go to, whether it's yeshiva or to Jewish schools, they're not learning about her. Her impact was tremendous. And because of her unrelenting heroism, she could have lived a very easy life. She had a, could have lived a very comfy life. Her indomitable will, she dealt with the challenges of great wealth. She, she, she lived her Jewish identity in the most hostile of environments. And her steadfast support and love of the Jewish people, there are today tens of thousands of Jews in this world who are physically alive, and are spiritual Jews. There are Jewish books uh, that from the times of the Mechaber, the Abuse of Cairo, that are out there. There, 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 there are uh, um, settlements in Israel which were inspired by her because one person realized the power of her deeds and didn't give up. And for ourselves, you know, as individuals, when you look at such a person, we should realize you know, that, that, that we write our, not only our own autobiography, you know, the Bali Muslims say every day of our life, we write a page of our autobiography in the world to come. It will be, what did you do today? But not only do what we do our own lives, we affect generations to come. If we could be inspired by a lady such as this, who had tremendous difficulties in life, don't think it sounds, it was melodramatic, but there are many times in life she could have given up, where, she, where things looked like it was the end of the game. Uh, we can be inspired in our lives to realize the things that we do, they don't just affect us, they affect people like ourselves 500 years later. And if we get that from her, not only is it a merit for her own soul, but it'll be a, it will give us the power to say, what could I do for myself? What could I do for the Jewish people? Because listen, for myself and yourselves, what we can do for the Jewish people is no less than Donna Grassi Mendes. We live in a time today where each one of us can impact so much we just have to believe in ourselves. We have to believe in the Jewish people. And we have to believe that our actions can have eternal effects because we're dealing with the eternal people. Thank you very much for listening. It really was an honor. And 
Again, I'll stay around. I believe there's a song about Donna Gustafson. We're going to be saying it now. Again, thank you again.